Well, good morning for those of you who are joining us today. Um, we are in the middle of the, the Gospel of Mark. We've been working through it now. Uh, this is, I think, Sermon 59 on the Gospel of Mark, which is awesome. I didn't think I could uh, get to 60, but it turns out I'm going to just easily, very easily. So we're in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, as it's called, which is a very long section of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark. I, did, I made some uh, introductory comments about that last week. But just for context's sake, Jesus has come. It's the last week of his life. He's come to Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple. He has found it more than a little wanting. He has found the temple authorities more than a little wanting. And he has judged them and is now uh, pronounced curses upon them and is explaining exactly what those curses are going to look like. Uh, and this all of it discourse is usually a section of the Gospels where out of the Synoptic Gospels, you know, people cut all the different all of it discourse parts out and they glue it together and then they staple it to the book of Revelation and then they say this is our eschatology, right? This is our belief of the end times. And uh, that has been very common. Uh, what we're going to actually look at today is that that is a very modern view, actually, uh, and not the biblical view. Uh, Jesus is asked a question. When will this temple be destroyed? And he answers that question. So before we begin, let us pray. Let us go carefully. Jesus, we lift up our hearts and our minds to you today. We pray, Lord God, that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would challenge uh, our preconceived notions about your word, that you would reveal in our own hearts the, our hypocrisy, our lack of understanding, uh, our... our weakness when it comes to biblical literacy. I pray, God, that you would you would strengthen us by your spirit, that you would use this day, this opportunity, this sermon um, as a means to grow us in the faith, to make us more like your son, to give us wisdom and understanding, and to help us to live according to your law and to live according to your grace. I pray, Lord God, that you would go before us and protect us as we open your word. And amen. Amen. Now, I have a, a book that I prefer to use. I like it a lot. It's called The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. If, uh, you can, if you're ever interested in a book that's going to help you understand the Bible, uh, this is a book called the, the, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. And what it does is, it, it, is it, it's a biblical theology that puts things together into groups. Like, let's look at trees. And let's look at all the trees in the Bible and see how trees are used in different ways. Uh, and that may sound weird to you, <laughs> but the stuff in the Bible is very important. Um, you know, it's no accident that the first creatures on this planet that heard that Jesus had come were sheep. Uh, if you go and you read about sheep, you actually come to learn a little bit why. And so in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, I want to, as an introductory moment here, just look at what it says about prophecy. Because prophecy is very, very difficult. Uh, I would it, I would say that it's actually more difficult to interpret prophecies than make them, um, and it's pretty hard to make them. Don't get me wrong. The imagery characteristic of prophecy often confuses readers because they become frustrated when they cannot understand prophetic passages with a quick reading. <laughs> that right there tells you something, right? I sat down, I read the Olivet Discourse, I don't understand it now, I'm frustrated, and and that usually leads people astray right out of the gate. Um. What, we, what is crystal clear at this point? Jesus made very clear. He sat down with the scribes, the people who are supposed to know, and what did he find out? They don't know. 
Okay, So the people who are supposed to know find that the scriptures, according to Jesus, are very complicated. They're asking him questions about Leverite marriage and, uh, and the resurrection, and he goes to a portion of scripture that has, on the surface of it, nothing to do with that. And he shows, see, you guys aren't even, you guys are reading the Bible in a very superficial way. Right? They're asking him about the Messiah. He goes to Psalm 110, which is never, at that point in, in the messianic conception, Psalm 110 was never considered. And, and what was Jesus doing? He was doing what he does to his own disciples. He says, look, open the word of God. Let's go pick a chapter, pick a verse. And he tells them what it has to do, how it has to do with him. Right? He is the interpretive principle. And, if, and right now we understand, because this is my kids do this all the time, because they hear the way that I talk, and they pick up their Bibles, and they're, they're reading Leviticus 17. And they say, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? Uh, he died for your sins. That's my quick answer, right? Uh, he died for your sins, and that's about sins and covering sins and sins. But, I mean, those are, right, you, you put it out there that it's all about Jesus. Right, and I've said it before. Then you get to the golden tumors in the beginning of Samuel, right, where they fill the ark with golden tumors, copies of their tumor, and you're like, that's about Jesus. And your kids are like, oh, yeah, show us. <laughs> and, and, and this, this is the Christian life. This is what it is all about. We have a book that if you sit down and you read it once, you have not mastered it. Right? It is simple enough. Uh, my daughter now is in second grade. We got her a Bible for her birthday. We're sitting down now. She just read to me uh, the very uncomfortable story about uh, Sarah and her mistress, Hagar. Right? And my little daughter is reading the story, and then she, why would she do such a thing? And she's capable of understanding it which is glorious, okay? And then I sit down with that same passage later after I've explained it to her, and I'm like, I don't really understand this, <laughs> right? And this is, the, this is what the Christian life is all about. This is what makes it fun, is that we think we know, right? We think we're mature. We think we've arrived. And then two years later, we think about ourselves two years ago, and we think, I got a lot of repenting to do. <laughs> <laughs> I have a dear friend, and, and he is a little more mature than I am, a little older. And I remember a conversation where he was, he was all, no end of grief about a sin that he committed. I'm like, man, dude, relax, calm down. It's not that big a deal. Ten years later, I remember sitting there having committed the same sin, and I'm like, oh, that's why he was so upset. I'm like, now I'm mature enough to understand the consequence of this. And, and my friend, who was more mature in sinning, <laughs> was also more mature in repenting. And this is what the Bible is all about. Because, right, you get to a certain level, and then you've got to go a little deeper and a little deeper. So, keeping this in mind when we're talking about prophecy is very important. Okay? There are some other principles that we have to keep in the forefront of our mind. You have to think about the author and the audience. Every book written in the Bible has an audience. Mark wrote this gospel for a particular group of Christians in the first century, and what he's saying is relevant to them in a way that is like more relevant than it will ever be to us. Okay, but because it's scripture and because it's about God, here we are with the Holy Spirit reading it, right, 20 centuries later, and, and, and there's a reality to it for us that isn't even that is more real than for them. And that is a very interesting thing, right? You sit, you hear Daniel being read to you today, and I could explain about Babylon, I could explain about how all of the stuff in that thing was fulfilled, and then Jesus comes, and we're going to look at about how it's even more fulfilled, and then there is an essence in which 
right? A new, a new Christian sits down for the, with the book of Daniel for the first time, and they realize truths about it. It's still working. It's still real. It's still valid. It's still living. Okay, but we cannot forget, like we so often do, right, that the Bible was written for a particular audience at a particular time. And, re- and knowing what, that, what those circumstances were and the intent is very important. Now, you have to, I think, study Old Testament and extra-biblical literature to sometimes understand the backgrounds. Uh, the amount of work that's done in archaeology is very helpful because it actually proves stories in the Bible uh, in a way that, that is very helpful. And, and I don't mean for e- even evangelistic purposes. I like to know that there really was a city called Jericho. I really like to know right, what the boats look like in Jesus' day, and when they dig one up out of the sand that's dated from the same time, and they can see it, and then I can see it, I think, okay, that's, that's the boat he's sleeping in. That does something for my faith. We're going to look at a, a Jewish historian named Josephus today, and it is amazing how his words align with the words of Scripture. They're not Scripture, right? Then you get into all kinds of... Well, why don't, if it's so accurate, why don't we just staple it in there in the back of the book? That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, we have to determine the main idea of prophecy. We have to understand that um, prophetic language is poetic language. For me, what I find the most common error is that people take the metaphorical parts literally and the literal parts metaphorically. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know how much has been cleared up in my own mind. I'm like, oh, that's it. Oh, that's poetic. Oh, that's not really going to... That's just... right. Stars aren't really going to fall out of the sky, are they? Mm. Oh, see what I did there? <laughs> what parts of it are literal and what parts are metaphorical? And in what sense, how are they all metaphorical? Ooh, now we're getting... Now we're playing with live ammo. Now, we have to also realize that though there is a historical setting in which these things were fulfilled, there is a typological fulfillment of them still. I'm gonna, this is what we're talking about today. You need to recognize the sign of when the abomination is set up in the high place. What we're talking about is abominations that lead to desolation being set up in temples. Right? So the typological mind says, okay, what's the temple now? Okay, and how are we supposed to respond when somebody's trying to set up an abomination that leads to desolation in the temple? Well, that seems pretty applicable, right? (laughs) Because you are the temple, and has anyone ever tried to set up an abomination inside of you? In your life? Have you? There's a meme that I like a lot, and it's like an old Scooby-Doo cartoon. And uh, it's the one guy with the white sweater, and he says, let's see who's been ruining my Christian walk. And he rips the mask off, and it's him. Oh, I've been ruining my Christian walk, right? And you have to understand that this application is relevant. We're not just talking about things that happened between Romans and Jews in the first century. We have to learn how to apply it to our own lives. Now, the Olivet Discourse is very complicated. Jesus has been arguing with the temple leaders Um, He has shown that their interpretations of Scripture are very shallow. And what we can't do is then have equally shallow interpretations of Scripture and and look at the (laughs) scribes and think, those dolts, those chuckleheads, those fools. I would never be misled like that. No, because because clearly what Jesus is talking about is that half the people are suddenly going to disappear one day. 
called the rapture. And I liked, I kicked the rapture around a while last week, so I'll take it easy on the rapture this week. But, right, people <laughs> who fiercely and zealously defend this doctrine are, are, are typically you sit under their teaching and you're like, man, they really give it to the disciples. My goodness. Thank goodness that guy wasn't a disciple. Right? Jesus, sit down for a minute. I got this. Would have been probably what that guy said. And how often are you that person? Right? Jesus, chill. chill. Let, me, let me talk to Peter for a minute. I will explain things in a way he can understand. This idiot. Right? But in the story, who would you be? Yeah, you wouldn't even be Peter. Okay? You'd be one of those other <laughs> disciples who we never hear anything from. Because they're just in the back of the boat like the whole time. Right? Think of the disciples. There's 12 of them. There's quite a few of them now. They're just there going, what is going on? Right? Page after page. They're just in the back. They're just like, I'm just going to go with Jesus. I don't know what's happening. That would be me. I'd be like, I'll just carry the stu- your bags and stuff. <clears throat> now, what is this section talking about? In the earlier portion, uh, or in chapter 13, I don't know if I've said that yet, but when we looked at verses 1 through 13, there was a lot about standing fast. Stand firm. Hold on. Be a man. Stand up. Now Jesus is going to start talking about running, and running fast. Okay? And, and what I find to be fascinating about this, especially in a, in a Reformed-leaning church, is we're all about standing fast. Right? In fact, we're such that we don't really know when it's not time to stand fast. We think it's always time to stand fast. You want a church split over this? I'll church split over this. I'm a son of Luther. You moron. (laughs) And I mean, this is what Reformed people are usually like. I can make fun of them because I am one of them. Uh, A number of committees that we have to have to avoid splits is amazing. Well, we can't just make decisions. We've got to talk about it for two years. I'm making jokes and I lost my way. What was I talking about, Steve? Okay. <laughs> Do you know how to discern the different with the times between standing firm and running away? I thought we were just supposed to stand firm all the time, right? Don't tell my other pastor friends I was I was talking about this because <laughs> the thing now in conservative circles is we're going to hold fast, hold the line. And then what happens, right? We want to contextualize. We want to dialogue. We want to engage culture. We want to hold on. We're going to not move the line. We're going to stay right here. And before you know it, somebody set up an abomination that leads to desolation in the holy place, and we are compromised to no end. It's called the PCA. I'm just going to say it. Okay? If you don't know what's going on over there or with our beloved brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention, they are holding firm, and they have not realized that they have been outflanked desperately. And, and, and the sign, they have not, right? <laughs> it's just, it's so humbling. Jesus says, learn to discern when an abomination has been set up in the holy places. And here you have people in the Southern Baptist Convention arguing for female pastors. And I thought the Baptists were like the most doggedly conservative group we had. The PCA it wants to, it is okay with openly gay ministers. Now, they're not all okay with it. But some of them are, and they've been outflanked. They did not understand that it was time to cut the hand off that is committing the sin, gouge out the eye. There is a time to cut and run. There is a time to cut and run. And learning the difference, stand firm here, (laughs) cut and run here, is something that we all need to learn. 
Okay. That is my introductory comments. We are now, <laughs> now going to move to the text. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Here we go. Ready? I'm a little nervous. This is really hard stuff. <laughs> okay. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, on the surface of this, this is very confusing because generally the reason you have walled cities is because when the trouble comes, you flee from the mountains and the fields into the cities. Okay, and, and generally that's in cultures that have walled cities, that's what the walled city is for. You flee to it when there's problems. Rarely in human history has it been a good idea to flee from the walled cities to the open fields. Can you think of some in the Old Testament? Where it was like, man, we have got to get out of this town because it's about to burn. Don't look back. You turn into salt. Run. Right? And that is what happened to um, Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a time to flee the cities. So automatically in the mind of someone who has read the Old Testament, we think, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What category are we dealing with here? Because usually God says, take the city. Kill everything. Burn it down. Take all the stuff. Right? That's, that's dominion. Not often does he say, run away. <laughs> the evangelist appears to have recognized the fulfillment of this prophecy in his own day because he inserts this phrase, let the reader understand. Okay? Now, clearly, it's not Jesus who said that because he's standing there speaking. <laughs> so he, he wouldn't turn to Peter and be like, okay, now, when you, after you've written this down, make sure you insert this phrase, let the reader understand. It's clearly a, a remark by Mark. And, and this throws people, right? Because, wait a minute, why is he commenting on the text? I just want to hear what he's putting words in Jesus' mouth. But we, that's because people who ask questions like that forget who wrote the whole Bible. Because the Holy Spirit is carrying Mark along. Mark, though he is recording Jesus' words, are in fact inserting his own. Right? He, we've clearly seen at this point, he is shaping this material to, to look a certain way, and God is leading him in that task. So I like this little moment here because it, it, the personality of Mark comes through. He's very enigmatic. He's very mysterious. Matthew, when, <laughs> when he is recording this material, he says when something is set up in the temple, right? He just comes right out and says it. Mark is always a little bit more mysterious. He's like, hey, guys, where it ought not be, wink, wink. And, and I like this about him because it very, it very much humanizes him for me. Now, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament is the source of this phrase, abomination that leads to desolation. The Jewish historian Josephus, now, he's an important character. Here's why. He was a leader of the Jews. He was a military leader. So he was in some of the cities that were taken by the Romans, and he saw the terrible, terrible things that occurred. And he was like, you know what I'm going to do? is I'm going to turn myself in. So he turns himself in, and then he becomes like an advisor to the Roman generals, and he becomes a recorder of what goes on, and he actually took it upon himself, and this made a lot of people angry, to go ahead of the Romans into the Jewish towns and say, listen, guys, I've seen what they're going to do, you, right? And you will hold out for a while, you're tough. It's not going to end well, though. And he tried to convince his own people to quit. So in a weird way, he's a, he's a glorious character for the Jews because he's trying to convince them that what they're doing is a very bad idea and they're not going to win. But generally, what do we call such people? Traitors, right? 
So if the Jew <laughs> so he had to stop going ahead alone because people wanted to kill him after not too much time. But he, Josephus, wrote down everything that he remembered that he saw. And it's a very interesting read. He found, he, in his mind, as a Jew, he was well-educated. In his mind, the events depicted in Daniel, prophesied in Daniel that we had read for us today and others, were fulfilled in A.D. 66 to 70. That was his opinion. He saw in that language the events of 70 A.D., This is what he he said. There broke out a prodigious storm in the night and the utmost violence and very strong winds with the largest showers of rain with continual lightnings, terrible thunderings and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth. That this was an earthquake. These things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men when the system of the world was put into this disorder. And one would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some, um, some grand calamities that were coming. This is the introduction to his work. He remembers how bad it was. He remembers that there were signs and things um, indicating that bad days were coming. He recounts the villainous acts of both Romans and Edomites, as well as the zealots, people who were Jews themselves, and how they desolated the temple. In this group, this trio of wickedness, we're going to look at the Edomites first. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. They were an ancient enemy of Israel, okay, going all the way back to Genesis. They are the sons and daughters of Esau. And Esau, as we know, right, God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Well, they hated the Jews and they hated God just as much. And they had this, they had this great scheme, which if you are in charge of an army, this is a good idea. If you have a very powerful neighbor who can kick you around wherever they want, you wait until they're being invaded by an even bigger power, and then you sneak in right before the end and you steal stuff. And this, <laughs> this was the Edomite method. They would wait until Israel was distracted by a much larger empire, and then they would sneak in and kill everybody and steal everything, which is wicked, but cunning. They were a cunning group. You can see why they've lasted so long. Now, what they did in AD 68, 20,000 Edomite soldiers surrounded Jerusalem when they were distracted, snuck in, and slaughtered 8,500 people right out of the gate in the temple. Like, you know where they're not going to have swords? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the Temple Mount. And so they went up to the Temple Mount and slaughtered 8,500 people right out of the gate. And Josephus records this for, for Jewish historians. This is what they consider to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. This was the beginning of the end for Jerusalem, the beginning of the fulfillment of Daniel. Now, there's another group called the Zealots. We've encountered these folks several times. They're very, very zealous. They don't want to collude in any way, shape, or form uh, with the Romans, in fact, their, their public enemy number one was, in fact, Josephus. Okay? They want to cleanse the house of God. They want to cleanse Israel. They want to get all the foreign powers out. And, and what, has, what ends up happening with them is, is they become the instruments of their own judgment. Their zeal to clean house ends up committing the abominations that they themselves were trying to prevent. It's like a Greek tragedy. They moved into the temple area, and they allowed persons who had committed crimes to roam about freely, and in the holy, right, they, they were surrounded, they didn't have a lot of space, so they started to execute people in the Holy of Holies. Now, I've read the Old Testament, that's a big no-no. 
How what are these people zealous for? I wonder. Is it right, the Holy of Holies? No. This is what Josephus says. For there was an ancient saying of inspired men that the city would be taken and the sanctuary burned to the ground by right of war when it should be visited by sedition and native hands should be the first to defile God's sacred precinct. This is an old um, prophecy in, in, Jewish, in the Jewish tradition that the Jews themselves would be the ones to first defile the kingdom of God. The saying, uh, this saying, the zealots did not disbelieve. They believed it, and yet they lent themselves as instruments of its accomplishment. Their zeal blinded them to even the fact that they themselves were the instrument of their own judgment, like parents who commit abortion. Right? Think about it. They're so zealous to protect what? Right? Their own freedom, and they are the instruments of their own destruction. Because it is a crime that, com that is committed that goes down to the very heart of them, that goes down into the very soul. And, it is, and, and, and it's not like what you see on CNN and the evening news. Right? You occasionally see somebody who goes up and they have a T-shirt, I committed 13 abortions, and they're super happy about it, and they're chanting, and they're, and they're like praising it. But that's not what happens to most people. What they feel is judged. What they feel is, right? How... <laughs> When we do things that, are, that, that our consciences do not agree with, what happens to us? And, and this, this is an age-old thing. People go into the most sacred places, and they defile them in defense of their idols and become the instruments of their own destruction. And this is terrible. Now, the zealots, <laughs> I, they kind of lost their minds at the end. They, they took this clown, this murderer, this fool that they had, and they made him the high priest. Uh, and, and one retired priest who was living in the, in, in the hills heard about this, and, and he wept, and he said, I wish they would, I should have stayed there so they could have killed me so I wouldn't have been able to see this. And many Jews believe that is the abomination that leads to desolation. They took someone who was not a high priest and made him a high priest over a band of murderers and thugs. Now, Jewish Christians would have seen all of this going on, Right? If we recall in Acts, they used to actually still go to the temple. They loved the temple still, Jewish Christians. And they would see in all these things equally, they would be as, as alarmed and dismayed and disgusted by them as anybody. And what they did is when they saw this stuff starting to happen, they all up and fled to a small town called Pella. They knew that it was time to cut and run. They knew. They saw these things and they said, no, no, God has protected this place. And he is no longer protecting it. And our time here has come to an end. Since Jerusalem itself is located in the mountains, the Christians understood the prophecy to refer to some other mountain range, right? You don't run from one mountain, you're on to the mountain next to it, because eventually the Romans are going to be there too. So you run to some other set of mountains. And they ran to a little place called the Decapolis, which for some reason was full of Christians ready to welcome them. And if we remember all throughout the Gospel of Mark, where was it that Jesus went and freed the man uh, who was living in the graveyard. That was the Decapolis. And then he would go in, and then we go back to the day. And it was almost as if he was preparing an ark. It's almost as if he's out there building a place for his people to flee to when the time comes. And that's what they did. The Christian historian, Yesubius, <laughs> did I say that right, Becky? No, I didn't. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> he was writing in the 4th century. <laughs> My Latin's not very good. 
Well, Eusebius, sorry, was writing in the 4th century, and this is what he had to say about this town of Pella. But before the war, the people of the Church of Jerusalem were bidden in an oracle given them by revelation to men worthy of it to depart from the city and to dwell in a city of Perea called Pella. To it, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem once the holy men had completely left the Jews and all Judea. The justice of God at last overtook them. Since they had committed such transgressions against Christ himself and his apostles, divine justice completely blotted out that impious generation from among men. Now that's in the 4th century. That's the 300s when he wrote that. So from the very, 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 very beginning of the church, because he is a pillar, he was one of the first post-apostolic uh, writers. I'm not going to insult you by saying his name wrong again. But he was a very important writer. And from the very beginning, he shows that they understood that God, by revelation, told his church when it was time to leave Jerusalem because it was going to be bad, and it was as bad as he said it was going to be. And so they did just that. So, I mean, this, part of this is that we are a modern church. <laughs> There's a Peanuts uh, comic that I love. And one of the characters, uh, it, you know, she has to write a, a paper about the church history. So she sits down and she says, my pastor was born in New York in 1934. And for a lot of modern Christians, that, that's what it's like, right? I can remember my parents. I can talk about that. I can talk about America. Yay. Right? And all the Christians in America. But how far back does our memory really go? And, and, and this is, C.S. Lewis has an essay called Reading Old Books. It's very important. We ought to read old books because what they do is they show us to our face the mistakes that we're making in our own age. So we go all the way, right? so what is a common interpretation of scripture that you believe that maybe was invented in the mid-1800s? Because that person may not be wrong. I'm not saying, I'm not a chronologically, chronological snob in the other direction. But would you rather have an idea that's been upheld since the third century, fourth century, I mean, or one that's only been around for like 70 years? I think that's, that's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. It's important to go back and read the old things, the old writers, the old thinkers. Now, what we have here is the urgency of Christ's command, the urgency of it. He knows how bad it's going to be, and he doesn't want his people being caught up in it. He doesn't want them caught flat-footed. He doesn't want them caught unawares. And you can hear it in what he says. In Mark chapter 13, verses 15 through 19, it's, it's four whole verses, but let's read it. You get what, how urgently he wants them to, to pay attention to the signs. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be again. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. He shortened it. Right? Because way back in the very beginning of Gen in Genesis, God repented of making man. And he said, that's it. Everybody's gone. I'll save this one family, but everybody's out. And afterwards, what did he say? He said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to just kill everybody. 
I'm always going to stop at some point and show you my mercy. And so if he hadn't have shortened the days, nobody would have survived. Because when his wrath right, is unleashed, it's hard to rein it in. When his wrath goes out, it goes out in such force that if unchecked by something himself, it will destroy everyone and everything. But you see here, this is the God that we serve. Do these, does this generation deserve what's coming? And I mean this generation in the Bible. Those who are alive there on the Temple Mount, do they deserve it? Right? When we read the story about how they whipped him, how they shoved those thorns into his forehead, all those things they did to him, do they deserve it? Yes. Yes. Now, lest we forget, you too were standing there. You too were holding a hammer. You too were holding a nail. You too were chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so what, does this generation deserve something better? And yet, God, in the midst of his promising justice, says, I will go this far and no further. Right? Now, how many of you had dads who disciplined you physically when you were children? Right? And it is very hard. Right? I, I'm with God. I'm made in his image. It is hard to put that wrath back in the bottle. Right? And, and are we the kind of fathers that know exactly when to stop? Always, in every case? Everyone is looking at the wall. Why are you all looking? Because we know how hard it is to get the wrath back in the bottle. And that's a kid who stole a cookie. Now, imagine God pouring out his wrath on the people who killed his son. How hard is it to get that wrath back in the bottle? But he says he's going to do it, and he does it. A flat roof was commonly used as a time for prayer. Now, it's very hot. They had flat roofs because they would be able to go up in the evenings and the mornings and sit on the roof where it was cool. And if you're up there praying and you see the destruction coming, don't go back inside. There's stairs on the outside of the building. Run down them and flee. Now, don't even, like, I mean, even in Egypt, the Jews were allowed to, like, you know, gather a few things. Remember that story? They actually gather some stuff. They wrap their clothes on. They sit down. They have time to eat a meal, all wrapped up and ready to go, and then they hit the road. No, 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 no. Stop what you're doing and run. If you're in a field, your cloak is, like, 40 feet away. Don't even go get it. Right, You can see it right there, and you're going to need it because you're going to be running out in the wilderness, and you're going to need something to lie down on or make a lean-to out of, but you don't even have enough time to grab it. He does not want them there. His children, he doesn't want involved in what's going to happen because they're his children. That's very important to remember. His compassion is evident. He's also hoping that they pray, they pray that it's not in winter. Because in wintertime, after the rains, the rivers flood, and it's very hard to cross them. Right? He's praying that they're not pregnant. He's praying that they're not nursing their infants. Because it's hard enough right, to pack the kids in the minivan and go down to Target and not have to uh, nurse the baby. But imagine running for your life. Now, verse 19 is virtually a, a direct citation from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation. The reason that flight is so urgent is that a catastrophe, I'm sorry, catastrophe without precedent is coming. It's imminent. The severity of the distress that will accompany the destruction of Jerusalem is vividly described. It is characteristic for oracles of judgment to be couched in language that is universal and radical. Now, remember, when he visits this generation with this turmoil, he doesn't cover the world with darkness. He's attacking a very particular place. And yet, 
prophetically, when they talk about things like this, what he's doing is so drastic, so intense, that it's, it, it, they describe it in cosmic terms. Now, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 or 10, l- listen to this. Wail, for the, Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. And this is just the nation of Babylon. So if that's the nation of Babylon, why will all hands tremble? Why will all hearts feel it? Because it's, right, the thing that he's doing is big. And when people hear about it, it's going to have an effect on them. And this is prophetic language, and this is partially what confuses people so much. It sounds like it's, it's the whole world, but it's not. In the context of verses 19 through 20, a distinction is made between the disciples who escape flight, because there's always a remnant now when God passes out judgment, and the men of Judea who cannot escape the judgment. Because going all the way back to Genesis, who are the elect of God? Right? Well, your father's usually Abraham, you're usually circumcised, and you usually hang out in and around Jerusalem. That's the elect of God. But now he's talking about the destruction of those people. So who are the elect now? It's not them any longer. Who is it now? Jesus brings forth the church out of the cataclysmic destruction of the Jewish people, and this is the birth of a new world. Right? When Jesus says, right, God so loved the world, what, what world is he talking about? He's talking about the new world that he's made. And the center of that world is a new temple. And what is the temple in that new world? You. You and me. One another. Right? He is recreating. This is the great recreation of the world. Because all the things that came to pass for the elect in the past have now been fulfilled in Christ, and there is something new. Something that has not been seen before. And it extends from the cross into eternity future. Just as Yahweh had led a mixed multitude out of the destruction of Egypt, so too will God bring out a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles to form a new creation with the universal church um, as, as the temple in its midst. In this immediate context, the normal sense of the words no flesh would have been saved is that no one would have escaped physical death if God had not shortened it. Now, what's interesting here, this is Just one last little historical note. These days in Rome, things were a little grim, grimmer than usual. Um, They went through four successive emperors, four of them. Nero, Otho, Vitilius, and Vespasian in the span of just a couple of years. So there's a lot of turmoil in Rome. Okay, so one of these guys, Vespasian, who's in charge of the military in Judea, has to go back because now he's the emperor. But he leaves his adopted son, Titus Andronicus, in charge of cleaning things up. So Titus actually gets the triumph of marching into Jerusalem and decimating it. And then so they go and they go to city to city to city because they are determined to get rid of Jews at last. But then what happens is Vespasian back in Rome runs into some trouble. 
And there's always a lot of civil war when there's a new emperor at this point. And so Vespasian says, hey, Titus, I need you back here. And so the armies who have just like locusts eating up everything stops. Build a garrison. Send most of the troops back to Rome. Right? And there the Christians are in Pella because it's coming. Right? They're killing everybody. And for some reason they stop. For some reason, before they actually destroy everything, they stop and they go home. And they don't know what's going on, but historically we know what's going on, and that is Vespasian needs Titus' help. Now, the severity of the judgment reflects the level of abuse of Israel's privileged status. Right? They're not just some people who met a guy named Jesus and rejected him. They are the people, right? Jesus came to his own, and his own did not know him. His own rejected him. They're his children. They're his brothers and sisters. They are, right? He is the word of God, and they're supposed to love the word of God. And how did they respond? Now, this is why it's a cataclysmic event unlike any other, because in Sodom and Gomorrah, those people didn't love God. They were wicked and evil. But how much more wicked and evil are the people who are supposed to be God's people who murder God? We forget in Matthew, standing before Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leader said, may his blood, right? May his blood be on us and our children, right? And so when we read about this desolation that's coming, it's not some future event. It's this generation. Jesus is who he said he is, and the Father has already shown them in the resurrection, and now he's going to put on his war clothes, and he's going to really show them. Oh, you guys think you got the Messiah, huh? You think you're prophets. You think you have the word of God. That is the word of God right there, and you killed him. And so when he, when vengeance comes for that, what do you think it's going to look like? And Hebrews says it even now, right? Because the same presumptuous sins are common amongst all covenant members. If you twice shed the blood of Christ, Jesus says it, was, it probably wouldn't have been a better idea to stay a pagan. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. If you're coming into this household, you better understand what you're coming into. You better understand what's required of you. You better understand the God, how much he's given you, this free grace that he just gives you. And if you're going to tread all over that, hey, just, you know, go back to the Mormon temple, right, and stay there. It's better for you. You will be judged badly, but it's not going to be as bad as if you come in here and start trampling on him. But this is what jo- Josephus's eyewitness account. Okay, Th- this is unprecedented, unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever occurred. The daytime was spent in the shedding of blood, and the nighttime in fear, when it was common to see cities filled with dead bodies, when Jews panicked and began indiscriminately killing each other, when fathers tearfully slaughtered their entire families in order to prevent them from receiving worse treatment from the Romans. When, in the midst of terrible famine, mothers killed and roasted and ate their own children, fulfilling the curse from Deuteronomy 28.53. And the whole land was full of fire and blood, and Roman soldiers captured those who had waited too long to escape and crucified 500 a day. Now, I, if go and you read accounts of what happened in Poland during World War II, which is the second worst thing that I can think of ever happening to people. And it doesn't compare to this. Now, I don't in any way, I'm not trying to downgrade, but in modern minds, we think, oh, World War II Nazis. That's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to people. And you go and things like this weren't even happening. They weren't eating babies. 
right? Dads were not wholesale slaughtering their whole family so they didn't fall in the hands of Nazis. This was a terrible event, and it's because, it's because the Son of God came to them and they said, no, not here. You're not going to sit on the throne in this house because we already we have abominations that we've set up in here and we are whoring people and we are people who reject God and so we want no part of we we don't know who you think you are and so you're we're going to turn you over to Gentiles. Now, <laughs> God's judgment is tempered with His mercy, expressed in the curtailment of the period of tribulation. The reference to the elect may have been suggested by the continuation of Daniel 12, verse, verses, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, which promises deliverance to the people of God. God had said, he's taking, um, the, Jesus said it in his, just previously in Mark, he said, I'm taking the vineyard away and I'm giving it to others. And that's what he's done. You. You are the elect of God who have inherited the vineyard. Mark chapter 13, verses tw- verse 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. It will also be a time when deceivers will run, riot, and lead many astray. And there's lots of recorded histories of this. Of Not long after this, there's like three different Jewish guys who thought they were the Messiah. Lots of people did. And they collected remnants and went all over the world and set up shop, and now they're called Rebbes. Their descendants are called Rebbes. If you look into Hasidic Judaism and various forms of it now, they have these very Messianic characters, even to this day, who, who talk apparently directly to God and direct everything in their people's lives anyway. But we're not supposed to be led astray by false gods. We're not supposed to be now, because Christ has come and he's done away with abominations that lead to desolation. Mark 13, 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Okay, here, here's the point. Because you're sitting there and you're wondering, like, okay, I have, to, I have homeschooling tomorrow. I've got to make lunches tonight. Okay, I've got to make sure that we make coffee, grind up the beans, make sure it's ready. I've got a lot to do. So this is an interesting history lesson, Mike. Thank you. But what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us? Jesus said, I've told you all of this. Be on guard. This is the worst tribulation of human history. And yet, it's only a shadow of, of one last tribulation to come. The final tribulation. The one that you cannot flee from. Right? You can't flee. Once you go down into the ground, and your eyes have closed, and your spirit has departed from your body, there's no more chance to flee. And when you rise up at that point, at the... <laughs> At the end, when Jesus judges, there's nowhere to go. And that tribulation is going to make what happened in Jerusalem look like a summer picnic. Do you know when it's time to flee? Do you know when an abomination that leads to desolation is being set up in the holy places? And I don't mean some far-off temple. I mean your heart. I mean your mind. I mean your household. I mean your marriage. I mean your parenting. I mean your work. Do you know when when it's time to cut and run? 
Are we a false temple full of idol worshipers and hypocrites? Do we stand on anything other than Christ? Do we presume upon the grace of God and think that everything is going to be just fine because I have the Bible, the Bible, the Bible? A day is coming when fleeing will not be an option any longer. Now, the word abomination in the Old Testament means idols and filthy idolatrous practices and things generally an enemy of Israel. Right here it is from Deuteronomy 29.18. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears do you know the root of bitterness can you recognize it in your own heart can you recognize it in your children can you recognize it in your spouse can you recognize it in one another and do you know how to get rid of it do you know how to flee it do you know how to cut it out Esau is the father of the Edomites. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. How have you sold your second birthright? You have the Holy Spirit. You have the oracles of God. You know the will of the Father. You are united to Christ, the Son of David and the Son of God. How have you sold him out? What have we sold it for? Porn? Drunkenness, money, pride, physique, respectability in the eyes of the world. What have you sold your birthright for? What is that sin you just can't get over that has become the root of bitterness in your marriage, in your life, in your children? What did Joseph do? Remember Joseph from the Old Testament? I like this. He stood firm, right? He's working in uh, Potiphar's house, and he's second to nobody. And the wife is like, hey, why don't you be first? She says, come and lie with me. And he holds firm, and he holds firm, and he holds firm. And you're like, man, this guy has got some juice because he is not being swayed by this woman. And then she reaches out and grabs his clothes, and what does he do? Does he stand firm at that point? Or does he run away? Christ said, recognize recognize the abominations because they're setting up in the holy place. It leads to desolation. And the only option at a certain point is to cut and run. You're hanging on to things you ought not to hang on to. You're dialoguing with things you ought not dialogue with. You are engaging, right? I'm contemporizing. I'm out there. I'm just a man of the people. You know, Jesus hung out with sinners, so I'm hanging out with sinners too. I need to watch Game of Thrones because otherwise I'll miss all that talk in the lunchroom. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness and faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. 
the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set about him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We do not know how to cut and run. We do not know what it means to cut off the hand that's committing the sin. We do not know how to recognize the abominations when we've invited them in. Charles Dickens said, right? <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before. He said, generally when Satan comes to visit, we welcome him in and give him the most comfortable chair. Right by the fire, where he's really comfy. Because we don't recognize it. We don't recognize the small compromises. Do you recognize the small compromises in your spouse? Do you recognize them in your children? Can you discern the difference? Well, you know, you're supposed to look at the, the log in your own eye before you go talking about the speck in anybody else's. And so you know what we do? We stop right there. That sounds hard. And we're people who then become presumptuous, become apathetic. And what God's, right? And we've forgotten the fact, right? Read about 70 AD. Read about what the wrath of God really looks like. But remember this. He cut it short because he wants a people. He provided a way for his people. And that way is to set their eyes on him, to look to him, and to run as fast as they can to him. Because you're not just fleeing into the woods. You're not just like, oh, well, let's just up and run into the desert. You're fleeing to Jesus. Do your kids see you flee to him? Does your spouse see you? Right? When your kids are upset and there's sin, do they flee to Jesus or do they flee to what? Fill in the blank. This is what the house of God needs, is cleaning. And, and right, we better clean it now because what we do not want is for God to come and clean it. Right? He's given us all, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says here, take care of business. And what we know from this story is that if we leave it and we don't take care of it, he will. He's given us everything we need to deal with it beforehand. And so let's deal with it beforehand. Father, we thank you so much for your word of grace. We thank you for your word of wrath. And we pray, Lord God, that we would not fear in our hearts like unbelievers, but that we would fear like children, that we would stand in awe of you and respect, that we would honor our father and our mother, that we would look to you, Lord God, as the provider of reconciliation, of the one who fills our lips with cries of mercy and the one who, who sings over us and delights in us. And you discipline us because we are your children and not, not because we are strangers. We thank you and we pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would learn to uproot the root of bitterness, that we would learn to know when to flee from abominations, that we would learn to, to recognize not only our, own, our logs, but the specks in our one another's eyes, and that we would graciously reconcile all things to you by the cross of Christ. And amen.